Well, what if Friday is all that we have? What if Good Friday is where it all ends? What if that was the last day of Easter? There was no Resurrection Sunday. There was no hope. What if Peter today was still a fisherman? What if Mary and the other followers of Jesus were still heartbroken over the death of Christ? Fortunately, we know that's not the case, but the sad reality is that for many people, we actually live like that's the case. We actually live like Friday-only kind of people, where we live in the defeat of the grave, in the fear of the grave, where we live in the belief that we're all on our own and we don't live in the daily communion and joy and fellowship that comes from being united with Christ. I know that most of you here today would not say that. You would not say, I deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ or the death of Jesus Christ. You wouldn't say that. But I ask you, do you believe it? Do you truly live it? Because we've been trained, many of us, to know the right answers. You come into church and you know on Easter weekend, we say, yes, Jesus died. And on Sunday, we say, yes, Jesus rose again. And yes, we will rise with him. And even we might at funerals say, yes, we're going to be with him. But do we actually ask the hard questions to let that belief transform our lives? Or do we live with a mental disconnect where we say one thing, but then our actions reveal something entirely different? Our actions reveal Friday's where it ends. You know, each week, many of us look on in horror as the world celebrates things that are logically impossible, inconsistent, really insane. It might be something like, a man winning a women's swimming competition. It might be something as insane as a politician saying they believe one thing when just a few hours before they were doing the exact opposite. And we would be right to be kind of horrified and even in some sense scoff at that and to think this is ridiculous. How can people not see this? How inconsistent and illogical it is. But the warning for us this morning is that that danger is very real for each and every single one of us. The danger of being deceived ourselves, truly the lies that are most, we are most susceptible to are the lies that we are closest to, the ones that we hold on to and don't even know, but they're valuable to us, and so we don't re-examine them. The lies we are most susceptible to believing are really the ones that we benefit most from believing. Perhaps the lie that you can't be saved by grace alone because it's uncomfortable. We, don't, we want to work for things. We want to earn our way to God. That Nothing else in life works that way. And so we don't believe that. We, we go with the lie that, yeah, it's not by grace alone. You have to work to be saved. Or maybe the lie that following Jesus has no implications for your life. It's easier to follow Jesus if you can follow him on Sunday and kind of nod your head, but then Monday to Saturday doesn't change a thing. Those are lies. And that's why the Bible is so clear in teaching Christians that we must think and live logically consistent lives based on not our own whims, but on the truth of God's revelation. If God has revealed it, it is true. And if it's true, it has real world consequences for our lives. And that means today we need to challenge some assumptions we need to carry that what if Friday is all there is 
to its logical end. See where we would end up so that we can avoid being deceived into living like Friday-only Christians. So with that in mind, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthian church, and he's doing on God's behalf what I hope to do on God's behalf today. He's warning them, you have some false beliefs, some false outworkings of your beliefs, and you need to challenge those. He's challenging them, and he wants to do it to help them connect the dots so that they can bring their life into alignment with God's truth and live for God's glory. The Corinthians, if you've read the letters to Corinth before, you know that they have a lot of problems. The Apostle Paul has called them out for sexual immorality that they're kind of giving a pass to. He's called them out for division, for selfishness, all these things that fly in the face and are logically inconsistent, incompatible with being a follower of Jesus Christ. And it just reminds me that it's true and it's, it's a reality that immaturity in your faith is often linked with inconsistency in your faith. If you are inconsistent in the outworking of your faith, that's just a sign of immaturity. And in one sense, it's normal for new believers to be somewhat inconsistent. They're switching worldviews. They've, they've come to Christ and they've adopted a different worldview and now they got to work out what that looks like. But those of us in the room who are mature in Christ, who have walked with him for a long time, should not be inconsistent in our faith. It's always a sign of immaturity, and it's something we should grow out of. And so one particular area that Paul wants to address with the Corinthians is in their belief of the resurrection of the dead, or rather their lack of belief in the resurrection of the dead. Apparently, there were some in that church who were saying that dead people stay dead forever, Essentially, that Friday is all there is. And it's understandable that that's difficult not to believe. Can you imagine walking through the cemetery, some cemetery in Windsor, and shouting out loudly, these dead people are going to walk again. They're going to live and breathe again. Their bodies are going to come up out of the grave. Uh, most, most people would probably stay away from you as a crazy one, somebody who's out of their mind. Dead people don't come alive. And so you can understand why for the Corinthians, this would be a hard thing to accept. Many deny the resurrection of the dead, but Paul argues it's incredibly dangerous to think that way. And he's going to logically debunk, you could say, their false beliefs. So looking at 1 Corinthians 15 verse 12, it says there, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, that's what a Sunday Christian believes, somebody who gets to Sunday, if he's proclaimed as raised from the dead, then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's using a logical tool, an if then. If this, then this. How does that work? And the reality is it doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. It's inconsistent. So reading on, he says in verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised because Christ is human, fully God, fully man. But if the dead aren't raised, then Christ isn't raised. And how he's going to carry that to its logical outworking. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, it's in vain. It's empty. And, and then your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, 
whom he didn't raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. Now that passage can be a little bit like, okay, let's follow the logical sequence, but it's really quite simple. It's if dead people aren't raised, Jesus isn't raised. You shouldn't preach that Jesus is raised then because that's useless. People shouldn't believe he's raised. That's useless. And you're actually even lying because you said God raised him, but he didn't raise him if dead people aren't raised. He's using a logical sequence of thoughts and ideas. And he's showing logic is actually a good tool that God's given us. If you want to avoid being deceived into being a Friday-only kind of Christian, rather than do what the world thinks and think logical people don't believe in the resurrection, it's actually the opposite. Logic leads you to the resurrection if it's founded on the right truth. We avoid deception by using God-given logic. Sometimes you just need to play out an idea to its logical end to see where it goes. A lot of people don't want to do this because that'll mean questioning what they're actually doing, what they actually believe. But Paul did this and he's showing it's a very bad and dangerous idea to deny the resurrection of the dead. Logic has its limits. I think all of us hopefully realize that. Logic, because of our sinful human minds, can't get us all the answers we need. Jesus is presented in the Bible as fully God and fully man. How does that logically work? We have logical shortcomings to figuring that out because we're sinful, but the scripture presents it as true. Therefore, it is true. God's revelation supersedes our abilities to access logic. However, logic still does have use. It has tools. Paul uses it here to show, here's the consequences of where your ideas go. What if those consequences, or what are those consequences? What if we are Friday-only Christians. This is it. That's it. Other than getting a Sunday morning off, you don't have to go to church. What difference does it make? Well, he shows it. Dead people don't rise. That's a consequence. If the resurrection isn't a thing, then the tomb is still full. Jesus is still in the tomb. And if Jesus is still in the tomb, if the tomb is still full, then my preaching is empty. If the tomb is empty, then our preaching is full. It's got meaning. It's got substance. But if the tomb is full, our preaching is empty. And an empty tomb is what we as Christians believe, a full tomb is a useless tomb. Your faith then is also in vain. It's empty too. It's not worth holding on to. Just imagine that is the place that Peter, that the other disciples were in from Friday till Sunday. There's the tension of Friday till Sunday where they are was that all a waste? Like I just abandoned my family to follow the Lord. And I thought he was the Lord. Peter even called him, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the one we hope in. Everything is in. All their eggs were in one basket. And then Jesus dies. And for Friday till Saturday, they're left with, Maybe that was the most embarrassing thing we've done in our lives to follow that man who's dead. Peter actually goes back to fishing. He's like, well, I guess this is what I go back to, return to my ways. That's the kind of vain faith we would have if the resurrection is not true. Preachers like myself would be found to be misrepresenting God, blaspheming God by saying, hey, God raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, If he didn't raise him from the dead, that's blasphemy. 
So Paul makes it clear, denying the resurrection of the dead has catastrophic implications for our faith. You might want to think of it like this. On older helicopters, there's actually a nut that holds on the rotor of the helicopter. And actually, in slang language, they actually refer to it by Jesus' name because this nut that holds on the rotors is so critical. And if it comes loose and falls off, you can imagine what happens to a helicopter it plummets to the ground. And your only hope, they say, is to call out to Jesus for help. So they actually, you look it up, they actually call this nut by Jesus's name because it's so critical to the functioning of a helicopter. Without it, you're done. The resurrection is like that. You get rid of the resurrection of the dead. By extension, you get rid of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You get rid of all of the Christian faith. So you deny one little thing. It doesn't seem like much at first. And in the end, you end up with nothing. You mess it all up. And Satan loves to do that. He loves to distract Christians with things that are not central to the gospel and to use those as tools to leverage your faith away by logical consequence from the things of Christ. You can almost hear him whispering to the Corinthians, hey, as long as you believe as long as you believe Jesus rose from the dead, you can deny your own resurrection. You're not going to be raised. You just got to believe. Even the Bible says that. Believe that he's raised and you'll be saved. But it's incompatible. It's logically impossible. And if you deny one, you will eventually live and deny the other, even though you say something different. Satan loves to do that, to deceive us. And some people wonder why Christians are so fierce in contending for truth. It's because we know if you start to live by lies in little areas, you, un you undo everything. You need to live consistently. You know, why does it matter that a church closes its doors when the government told it to? It's not a big deal. It's not a gospel issue. Why does it matter that the Bible says there's male and female? That is not the gospel. That's not a gospel issue. Uh, why does it matter that the world was created in six literal days? That's not, that's, not, that's not a gospel issue. Well, it is if you understand the inerrancy of God's word and you undermine one thing, well, why would you trust anything God says? If God is good and he communicates and reveals truth, why would you believe the resurrection if you don't believe these things? And you can see how important it is to contend for truth. You get the point. You deny truth in a less significant area or what you seem to think is a less significant area and you end up denying the resurrection. You end up being a Friday only Christian. This is all we got. We sing nice songs. We think nice thoughts about a hero that died a long time ago, but that's it. It's kind of like a remembrance day service for fallen soldiers. Thank you. And we move on with our life. But that's not how it is. And if to emphasize this, Paul actually circles back and he kind of goes on it again. He says in verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, then I'll put then in, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are to be of all people most pitied. The consequence here of denying the resurrection is that your faith is futile, which we've mentioned. Protestants love to emphasize faith alone. 
faith alone saves. But faith alone doesn't save. It's faith in Christ alone. The object of your faith is everything. There are a lot of people that put all their hope and even live logically consistent with that hope in something that cannot save them. And if you're a Friday-only Christian and Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that's a futile faith. That faith, you could have all the faith in the world, but it's in a dead Savior. We obviously don't believe that, praise God. It's faith in Christ alone that saves. Without Christ and without his resurrection, we would still be in sins. Sin would still have power over you. Not only that, but your loved ones that died would be gone for good. They would be, there would be no hope. You would grieve exactly the same way as everybody else in the world grieves. The resurrection absolutely matters. But knowing this, you can kind of see why the world laughs at us at times. Because to them, the resurrection isn't true. It's a fable. Paul himself says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. So rather than a health, wealth, prosperity gospel that says, well, even if the, re- even if the resurrection isn't true, following Jesus is still really good for this life. Paul has a very different idea. Yes, God's ways are the best way to live life, but persecution comes to believers. And you live your whole life giving up everything. And if there's no resurrection, you are laughable. You are pitiable. We are pitiable. It's kind of like uh, many of you might remember years ago, circulating in emails was this email spam coming from the Nigerian prince that says, hey, I'm a prince and you know, you have been nominated as the heir of my inheritance and all you have to do is give me your bank account information and I would love to trans- maybe even just send me a bit of money and I'll transfer a bunch of money into your account. And you know, we laugh at people that fall for this stuff. Hopefully you're not here and you fell for that, right? <laughs> we laugh and we, we kind of feel sorry. We're like, how gullible are you that a prince would nominate you as the heir of his inheritance and just give him your bank account. That's the way the world looks at Christians. Like how gullible are you that a God actually came as man and died and he rose again and he asked for you to give up everything to follow him? Sure. And it would be, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, it would be that laughable. But if Jesus rises from the dead, the opposite is true. You're insane not to follow Jesus. And that's the difference that comes when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see who Jesus is. Paul is not done here. He continues on in verse 20. He says this, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It's a fact. It's absolutely true. If you want to avoid being duped, being deceived into becoming a Friday only kind of Christian, you need to not only think logically, that has, a, that has a cap on how much it'll do for you. You need to base your logic on the revealed truth of God's word. You need to go back to God as your starting place. We avoid deception by basing our lives on God's revelation. The problem the Corinthians have, if you look through this passage, they started with themselves. They're kind of pondering, hey, is there a resur- is, do we have a resurrection? I've never seen it. I've never seen somebody rise from the dead. One of my buddies rise from the dead. And in Greek thought, there was many people that said, no, their soul might rise, but their body's not going to rise. And so this kind of thinking in the absence of evidence to the contrary kind of 
slips in. They start with themselves and their experience and they think, hmm, maybe, maybe there is no resurrection from the dead. However, if they had started instead with God's supreme revelation, Jesus Christ, if they had started there, they would have come to the right conclusion. They would have come to the conclusion that we in fact will rise because Christ has risen. Interestingly, in this passage, Paul doesn't jump to proving the resurrection of Christ like many of us go to. It's an accepted fact to the Corinthians, it must have been, that Christ rose from the dead. They had eyewitnesses like Paul who saw the resurrected Christ that they could correspond with. They were a lot closer to the resurrection. So they may have even had in this mind this disconnect where like, well, Jesus rose from the dead, but he's God. And so that's okay, but we won't rise from the dead. And Paul's shattering that idea saying, no, these are connected. As a side note though, it is helpful for us. We're 2000 years removed from the resurrection of Christ to think through how do we know the resurrection actually happened? And you can watch movies like The Case for Christ that kind of explain this really, really well. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit's got to convince you it's true, but there's all kinds of evidence for the resurrection of Christ. In fact, there's tons. Jesus truly did die. There is no way you could bear all that Jesus bore on the cross and then be buried in a tomb and that you could kind of revive yourself to walk out. The whole swoon theory is completely garbage. It's not true. Jesus absolutely died. There were Roman soldiers that were standing guard who would lose their lives if Jesus <laughs> escaped or if disciples came and stole them. What, what advantage would it be to the Roman government for Jesus to be stolen? They had protection in place so that that wouldn't happen. Not only that, Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses. He was seen by people who actually placed their hand in his side and saw the resurrected. It wasn't like a clone thing or somebody else. It was the real resurrected Christ. Not only that, think about the disciples. And this one, I think, is the, the one that just clicks for me. The disciples, Peter, claims, I will stand for you, Jesus. But when the soldiers come to take Jesus, what's he do? He runs away. Then he kind of gets close as, as he can to see what's going on. And he ends up denying Jesus three times before the rooster crows, just like Jesus predicted. Peter ends up being bold in, his, in his, what he says he'll do, but then when it actually comes down to it, he's actually really timid and he runs. He runs and he runs back to fishing. But church history will tell us Peter didn't stay a fisherman. Peter actually went on to give his life for the crucified and resurrected Christ. Peter wouldn't have done that if he didn't witness the resurrected Christ. And not only that, 10 out of the 11 disciples, Judas obviously left, 10 out of the 11 disciples just died by martyrs' deaths. That's huge, huge. They obviously believed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's every reason to believe the historicity of the resurrection. But here, Paul is actually more interested in the logical conclusion of the resurrection. The argument originally was, hey, human beings can't rise, so Christ can't rise from the dead because he was human. But we're gonna see the opposite's true. Christ rose, so human beings can and will rise from the dead. Verse 20, it continues, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
Christ's resurrection was not the first resurrection to ever happen. Christ himself resurrected Lazarus from the dead. So how's he the first fruits? Well, Christ is the first fruits because he's the first permanent resurrection. Lazarus would die again. Jesus Christ never dies again. He's the first fruits. All other resurrections would die again, except for Christ. And to Christians, then we say it's like the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep because death is not permanent. It's literally like falling asleep because we will be resurrected again one day. The passage continues in verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Adam, the first human being to ever live, sinned against God. And as a result, every single person born of his seed is in sin to start with. And then we manifest sin in our own life. We sin against God and so we're guilty, we're condemned. All that are in Adam are dead in that way. There's no exceptions. Similarly, all who are in Christ will be made alive, no exceptions. Jesus Christ is the great reversal of Adam's fall. It's important to realize though the all, when it says all in Adam, it means like everybody in this room. But when it says all in Christ, it's not referring to everyone. It's not some kind of universal salvation saying everybody's going to be saved. That's not the truth. That would be a lie. All is the all in Christ, all those who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in him. Those who belong to Christ, as the passage goes to say. His death is our death, Christ's death paid for our sin. And because he rose, Romans 6 would tell us, we will rise. There is a different kind of resurrection for those that aren't in Christ. There will be a resurrection to eternal suffering and damnation a place of suffering because they've rejected Christ. But notice the timeline of things. It says Christ first, he's the first fruits, then at his coming. So at his second coming, when Christ returns, that's when the resurrection happens for all of us. It's a permanent resurrection. At that time, we are resurrected and we don't have to experience death any longer. And the reason we say that is because some people, some Christians, they're enthusiastic and they are believing in God's power. And so they will say things like, God can resurrect right now. We should pray for resurrection right now. So somebody passes away and they pray for a resurrection of that person. And God can, he's God, resurrect that person like he did with Lazarus, but that's not, that's not his game plan right now. His game plan is the resurrection is at the end. Even if he did resurrect somebody now, they would die again. And so would you pray then at their next death for another resurrection, another resurrection? That would just signal that your hope is all in this life. It's a huge testimony to other people when we aren't praying for a resurrection right now, but are praying and hoping in the resurrection when Christ comes again. The permanent resurrection. And this resurrection is key to the next paragraph in verse 24. He says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. We could do like a whole sermon series on this whole passage. And many people do. But for this morning, the takeaway that's important is a dead king is not a reigning king. 
He can't put things under his feet if he's still in the tomb. If you're a Friday-only Christian, Jesus is not king. Jesus would be dead. But he is king. This makes it clear he's king. And verse 26, it says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Jesus on the cross, when he died and when he rose again, he conquered death. But interestingly, he conquered death, but the final installment of his conquering of death doesn't come until his second coming. At his second coming, that's when we get the, the final installment. It's like we've got the down payment, the proof that the second coming's coming, that the resurrection's coming, the promise of our ultimate resurrection. It's now, but it's not yet. We get a taste now, but only a taste. Then verse 27, he says, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted. That is God, the father is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. So God puts all things under subjection of Christ, except himself, God, the father, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. It's a lot of language there. And you're like, I am not following. Here's what you need to follow. God, the father put all things in subjection under Jesus, except himself. Ontologically, the father is superior to the son. The son is subordinate, not ontologically, rather functionally in the role, but ontologically the same. We believe in the Trinity, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, all equally God in being but distinct in persons. That's what this passage is getting at. But the point that you need to take home is Jesus Christ is Lord over all. That means every single one of us in this room, nobody escapes that. That means every single one in our province, in our country, he is Lord of all. God the Father has done that. So Paul made his case that if you deny that you will one day rise from the dead, that's tantamount to saying Christ isn't king. He hasn't risen from the dead. We have no hope. Again, no born again Christian would want to say that with their words. We know better than that. However, Paul is going to show us, hey, are you pointing to that with your lifestyle? Are you living out your faith consistently? If you want to be, avoid being deceived, you need to live out your faith consistently. Verse 29, he says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are the people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What he's saying in that first section is a little puzzling. You're like, baptism on behalf of the dead? We don't do that at harvest. You're like, and Paul didn't do that either. But he's referencing something that's going on and saying, hey, look at this. People baptize on behalf of the dead because they believe in a resurrection. They're at least consistent in their worldview, even though we don't agree with baptism for the dead. And then he points to himself. He's like, I'm in danger all the time. Why? Because I believe in the resurrection from the dead. He obviously did not die literally every day, but he died to self every day. And why? Well, look at verse 32. He says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So Paul probably never actually fought literal beasts at Ephesus. It's not recorded anywhere else in scripture. And he was a Roman citizen. So he probably wouldn't have been thrown to the beasts, but he absolutely had persecution that came against him. And he's saying, why would I endure that? Why would I leave my successful 
career as a religious person to follow this narrow way, this minority group of people that are being persecuted. Why would I do that? Well, it's, he tells us in Acts 26, it's because he met the resurrected Christ. And now he's making it clear that Christians should live their lives reflecting the resurrection hope they have. He says in verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. That's quite the way to end a passage. He's like, wake up, you drunks. Wake up. What are you doing? Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. The bad company we, we flirt with today might be, you know, you're, you're hanging out with stagnant Christians that actually don't believe the resurrection. And all they do is convince you that really it's not that big a deal. The normal Christian life is kind of an apathetic Christian life. Maybe the bad company is with those who are skeptics of the faith and you're not sharing the truth of God's word. You're letting yourself be influenced by their doubt of the resurrection or their doubt of these key parts that end up undermining the faith. Whatever it is, he tells us, hey, that's not normal. Don't hang around bad company. Hang around people that get the resurrection. Many Christians do. They, take, they look around themselves and they take the temperature of the room. They take the temperature of the average Christian in North America and they say, oh, I guess that's what normal is. We learn by example. And so we look around, we're like, oh, they're like us and that's normal. I guess it's normal to kind of functionally live like the resurrection isn't true. It's kind of normal to be a Friday Christian or to say we're a Sunday Christian that we believe in the resurrection, but we don't actually. That's not, that's not the way it is. Paul's like saying, wake up. Wake up, shake yourself. Just do a little shake. Look, think about this for a second. It's not logical. So what does a life of someone who says the right things but doesn't believe it look like? Here's a few things. This isn't an exhaustive list, but these are some things that if this is marking in your life, you might be like, I want to go back. Do I actually believe the resurrection? People that don't really believe the resurrection don't share their faith with people because it doesn't matter. Because Paul says in this life, you're most to be pitied if there is no resurrection. So why would you call somebody to Christ if there's no resurrection? People that don't believe the resurrection are okay with a faith, faith that doesn't cost them anything. They still live in their sin. They're kind of like the person with the, the jail cell, the door's wide open, but they still live in the jail cell because it's comfortable and they really, I just don't really want to go out of the jail cell. They still live in their sin. They don't have to, but they do. These kind of people, if they read their Bible, it's really just to check a box. It's not because they want to know God. It's just to kind of say the right thing, do the right thing, but it's not really because the truth transforms them. They grieve death like the rest of the world. So you go to their funerals and their funerals look exactly the same as the non-Christian funerals. They just say a couple different words, but they are actually as heartbroken and as, as, as devastated over the, the loss because for them, the loss really is permanent. They maybe avoid danger because danger means possible death, which means extinction of me, end of me. Especially the danger that comes from doing what Christ did. These are the kind of people that always want to be first because the Bible says the first will be last and the last will be first. And they're like, well, I'm not going to wait to be last. I'm not going to go last because I might never get, get to be first. All their goals and dreams might really just be about the next thing in this life. Or maybe they make their decisions primarily on getting ahead rather than advancing the kingdom. That's what it looks like. And this is the, the reality. Your life, the Christian life is meant to be a testimony of the resurrection. 
We live in the Friday, but we are telling people Sunday is coming. And we tell people Sunday is coming with our life. The question is, are you living that? Today we remember that Jesus died, but it's not a Remembrance Day service where we just honor a hero of the past because Jesus lives. He's here. We worship him. And if you've never been introduced to him, we would love to introduce you to him today. But church, Sunday is coming. We're on Friday. We know Sunday's coming. Have you told someone Sunday is coming? Do you live like Sunday is coming? That's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for you. And to that end, let's pray now that we would live that way as we await Sunday, both this week and the Sunday that's to come when Christ comes again.